everyone. Welcome to the 17th episode uh, in the ongoing series here on Farm Chatter, Spanish Jury Through the Ages. On this episode of the podcast, I was joined by Professor Ronnie Pirellis to discuss uh, autobiograph- autobiographical narratives and accounts uh, of Murano's conversos in the Atlantic, in the Americas. This episode actually was recorded well before the series uh, even began, but once I had it recorded, I hadn't released it, and I realized that I was going to be doing this series, I figured that it's a good idea to include it in the series. Um, notably, these focus around three autobiographical accounts. Luis de Carvajal the Younger, kind of a famous individual, and if you're not familiar with him, you'll hear about him. One uh, being Manuel Cardozo de Macero, and one is Antonio de Montesinos. And Montesinos, otherwise known as Arana Levy, will come up much more in depth. There'll be two episodes, one with Professor Perellis and one with uh, someone else on him in the next series on Svarm Chatter, which is the 10 Lost Tribes in Jewish Consciousness. So stay tuned for that. But there was a episode earlier in the series about autobiographical tales and narratives uh, with the Inquisition. This is kind of similar, but a little different. So I figured this would be a good idea to include this here, which is why it uh, is included in the series. Uh, as always, I would like to thank the corporate sponsor of this series, Gluck Plumbing. For all your service needs, big or small in New Jersey, with a full service division, from boiler changeouts, main sewer line snakeouts, camera ink main lines, to a simple faucet leak, Gluck Plumbing Service Division has you covered. Give them a call, 732-523-1836, extension 1. Again, 732-523-1836, extension 1. Uh, now, I also would like to mention, uh, now there's... Finally, some intro music here on the podcast. I'm curious to get listeners' feedback, if they like it or don't like it. I do want to thank Usher Tesser of Control A Creatives for his help there with that and uh, some other things that he set up, um, improved audio equipment, software, and things like that. So hopefully that'll help the audio experience as well as some graphics and things like that. Uh, additionally, I think I mentioned this, but maybe I didn't. Uh, there's now a WhatsApp community, so one admin only where I post farm and books like what I was doing on Twitter, and there'll be a link to that in the show's notes if you would like to join that. There are two associated groups, one to discuss farm and books and one to discuss the podcast. But, you know, if you don't want to join a discussion group where anyone can post, don't join those. Just join the main one where only I'm posting, and I post about the news farm books, put up the new episode of the podcast, whatever it is. So there's that as well. Uh, if anyone would like to sponsor an episode, it's $360. To do so, you can Zell, Chase Quickbase, Farmchatter, gmail.com. There's a link via PayPal in the show's notes. And you can give anything less as well to support various improvements and enhancements uh, here on the podcast, audio-wise and otherwise. And also, I've uh, been doing some research and looking into, there's a couple of new series that I'm working on and some other things. So if you want to support the podcast again in any way, you can also chase, chase Quickbase, Zell, uh, PayPal, and very much appreciate it. And thank you to those who have given. Uh, additionally, and finally, please subscribe to the podcast as well as uh, wherever that is you listen, Apple, Spotify, 24-6, elsewhere. And if you listen on Apple, please, if you can, rate and review the podcast. I very much appreciate it. So enjoy this episode number 17 as we are nearing the end of the Spanish Jewry series. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Farm Chatter Podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Professor Ronnie Pirellis, who is the Chief Rabbi Dr. Isaac Abraham and Yelena Rachel Alkali Chair and Associate Professor of Sephardic Studies at the Bernard Revel Graduate School of Jewish Studies of Yeshiva University. And we'll be discussing his 
book, which is entitled Narratives from the Sephardic Atlantic, Blood and Faith, which is about autobiographies of conversos and former conversos in the Atlantic. So thank you, Professor Perellis, for joining me. Pleasure, Nachi. Thank you. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it's fun to be on. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start off. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Um, I am uh, I'm a proud Juban. I'm a Cuban Jew from Miami. Um, and uh, my family came from Eastern Europe through Cuba and, um, and left with the rise of Fidel Castro. And they came to America. And I grew up in, um, in Miami and uh, in a very warm, traditional Jewish home. Um, and and uh, studied in Israel. I did my BA at Bar Ilan. I, I, did, I spent time in yeshiva in Israel. And uh, then I, I came back to America for grad school. I went to uh, the Department of Spanish at New York University, where I thought I was going to be doing all sorts of things, which I ended up not doing, uh, which I think I, I, I tell my grad students always, you know, you can go in with a clear idea, but be open to everything because things change. And uh, um, and and I there I discovered uh, the fascinating world of colonial Latin American literature, uh, reading Columbus and Cortez and Bernal Diaz and all these chroniclers and, and explorers and conquerors um, and and mystics, um, and it started a fascination with that time period, with that part of the world, um, and I always went into Spanish thinking that I was going to be doing something comparative with Jewish sources. I, I thought I would do medieval Spain. I would do Hebrew, Arabic, and Spanish, and kind of the interactions between the different cultures in medieval Spain. Um, at times, I was, you know, I, I was and still am deeply, uh, deeply uh, passionate about the works of Jorge Luis Borges, the short story writer who weaves in Kabbalah, Jewish history into his literary stuff. I had all sorts of ideas of what I was going to do. I didn't really know. And this, this colonial stuff really got me um, thinking. And, um, and one thing leading to the other, I started finding certain Jewish elements in that. And that's how I got into this. Um, yeah. And uh, so from there, I guess you somehow eventually got up to here, which is the Murano Conversos kind of thing. And then specifically in the Atlantic, which is the West Indies. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so the, <coughs> um, one of, one of the big ideas that I encountered when I was in grad school was the idea of reading the center from the margins, um, and whatever that might be, you know, that could, you could, you could flip out the center for the margins, but, but that in order to understand the canonical or the central, you know, master narrative you're going to understand it a lot better if you read it from the sides, if you read it from the outside, from an outsider's perspective, that's going to give you greater insight and actually allow you to critique and allow you to see the, the fissures and, and the structures of things. And so that was very, that was kind of a big idea in grad school in different forms, whether that was to do with gender or to do with race or to do with all these different areas. Um, and, you know, reading these texts and understanding that this time period for Jews and Jewish life was this critical time. Um, Columbus leaves 49, you know, in 1492, 
Jews are kicked out in 1492. Um, the monarchs sign the letter uh, of, of expulsion at the same palace, um, the Alhambra Palace in Granada, that they signed the contract with Columbus. They're not, you know, th these things are happening at the same time. You know, the Jews are being, are being pressed, they're pushed out, they're forced to convert. There's a lot of things happening in Jewish life all throughout the old world. And I was feeling, well, what's going on with Jews here? Are there Jews here? What is the Jewish story here? How, how, are, how are the ideas of the new world being filtered back to Europe um, so I had a lot of, these were like some big questions. I really didn't know what to do with them, um, um, at the time, but yeah. Okay. So now let's, let's talk a little bit, uh, let's talk about the book, but before that, I mean, you do actually do this in the book before you get into the actual, these autobiographies, it's something that we probably should do here. Um, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. Hopefully I have other episodes on this, but talking before we get to the conversos and the former conversos and, and we have to kind of set the stage a little bit starting in 1391 and then 1492 and the expulsion of the inquisition so talk a little bit broadly speaking and briefly before we can get up to you know the characters and in, in the sure. three characters specifically in your story that you their story that you tell sure thank you so um spain is as most listeners know was the place until 1492 is probably the the largest and most um, sophisticated, developed, richest, culturally, you know, um, um, elite community in the Jewish world. That is how the Sfaradim saw themselves. Um, and that is also, you know, you can make a very easy argument either numerically or in terms of the, you know, the output. And that was true from, you know, from the ninth century onwards, you know, it was a very, very important Jewish community, large, integrated, in the summer of 1391, there is a power vacuum. There's a eruption of riots against the Jews starting in Seville, and it spreads throughout the country, um, devastating the Jewish communities. Um, you know, many people are killed. Many people are forcibly converted. And many, many communities are just destroyed. Jews have to run away for their lives and were never allowed back. Uh, that was true in a place like Barcelona. It was true in many other places as well. And... These riots um, were, a, were a shock, even though obviously there was mounting anti-Jewish sentiment and things like, you know, and, and, and um, missionizing and preaching and, you know, to Jews and things like that. But this, this violent turn was somewhat of an anomaly, thankfully, before that. And it was a huge shock to the community, resulting in thousands and thousands of forced converts overnight, basically, you know, or in the course of the summer. And so now you have a, the birth of a, of a converso community, right? Converts to Christianity um, from the eyes of the church. It doesn't matter their status. It doesn't matter what was in their heart when they were dragged to a church and they, they decided to convert to save their lives. Um, it doesn't matter if they did it willingly. You know, we, we don't have records of that. We don't know. Um, we do know it was under duress, it was under a situation of tremendous violence. But in any case, the, the church looked at these new converts as, as converts, and they are now Christians, and so they have to live like Christians. What happened to the Jews who stayed Jewish? They live in the same, they often will be living in the same neighborhoods. Um, often their family members um, converted. So you'll have brothers, one converted, one didn't. Uh, you'll have 
mar- you know, marriages where someone someone was safe in the castle and the other person was lost and was thrown, you know, into the church and decided to convert. And so now what do they do when they're married? I mean, this was this this obviously, you know, for for you know has huge implications throughout throughout the peninsula. And it also leads, because the numbers were so great, um, it leads to kind of a general societal suspicion of the converts. Are they really good Christians? Are they secretly practicing Judaism? Um, you know, can we really trust them? And also envy and jealousy, a sense of um, now these people don't have any of the restrictions they once had. They can do whatever they want. Um, look at how they're lording it over us. I mean, these things you see, and they come to a head in the midpoint of the 15th century, 1449, there's these outbreaks of, uh, of another riot, this time against conversos. Um, and there's an imposition of blood purity laws. I'm simplifying things, but just to give a sense, the, these blood purity laws were, again, very, very new and very you know, counter much of Christian ideology, Christian outlook, um, but, it would, it, but they stuck. And they stuck and people um, were now people with converso origin, people whose parents or they themselves or their grandparents converted had to, you know, were not allowed into certain positions of power. Um, this is so this leads to these tensions um, throughout the 15th century between conversos and what came to be known as old Christians. So old Christians versus new Christians is another term that you'll hear a lot. And um, and again, where are the Jews? In other words, when I say Jews, I mean the Jews who didn't convert. Um, where are the people who are still keeping Shabbat and still learning Torah and still um, keeping the communities going? Uh, they're often living right next door to the conversos, um, sometimes still doing business with converso relatives, um, and other times not. And some, you know, in some communities, there's a there's a distancing, there's an animosity. It's it's a very complex picture, and um, I mentioned 1492 because people know that as obviously Columbus sailing the ocean blue. People know about it as the year that the Jews are are, are expelled, um, right? And but there's something else that's going on that people often don't know, which is that 1492 is the end of of a several century long battle of the Christians trying to retake territory and power from the Muslims. The Muslims, Muslim armies took over the Iberian Peninsula in 711. And, and you know, there's been a kind of continual war between the Christians and Muslims on, ter- on Iberian soil. And it culminates with the last bastion of political power, Muslim political power in Granada, the beautiful, the beautiful city of Granada in the south of Spain, um, is finally captured on January 2nd of 1492. And, and like I said, it is from that palace, that palace, um, you know, that for hundreds of years was the, was, was, was the palace of the Muslim kings, where these very religious individuals, Ferdinand and Isabella, who had this sense of, of destiny and of religious mission, um, they finally completed this amazing, you know, conquest of of the Muslims of the infidel, and then they turned to the Jews. And this, you know, this, I th- I encourage you to have people on who are experts on the Abravanel 
um, because he has an insight here. I think I, I find it very compelling. He, he argues that it was that sense of, of more of religious debt that the monarchs had that drew that drove them to make the decision to expel the Jews. Um, but psychology aside, there was a sense that the Jews and the conversos were being a, were becoming a problem. And the theory was that if we get rid of and the, the theory, when I say theory, this is the, the, the logic and the justification put into the edict of expulsion, um, which was the Jews living next, you know, living in the same space as conversos means that the conversos can never fully assimilate. And if we, if we get rid of the Jews, then the conversos will finally fully assimilate into the Christian body politic. And we won't have these tensions and we won't have this heresy of backsliding and um, so on and so forth. So, so that's the reason they give for expelling the Jews. Um, and so, so the, you know, that, so you have evidence before 1492 of conversos who are caught keeping Judaism in secret, being crypto Jews. Um, is the term I, I like to use for that that activity. The, the church calls that Judaizing. Um, and you know, so you're you're a Christian, uh, but you you avoid cooking on Shabbat. You literally you make adafina, you make you you make challenge, right? Um, and we have we have descriptions of these, you know, you take the pot and you put the food in and you put the coals and you put it in the ground and you cover it and then you take it out and you eat it on Saturday. Um, in any case, the, the, we have evidence that conversos were holding on to some Jewish practices, holding on to some interesting hybrid beliefs that despite the fact of their Christianity, believing that that the Messiah is going to come. It's going to save them. They're going to be saved uh, by a Jewish Messiah. Um, uh, Renee Levine Malamed's book on, on um, heretics or daughters of Israel talks about this. Um, and you see this carrying over to after the expulsion as well. And like I said, you know, another thing that keeps conversos in the Jewish orbit was the anti-converso sentiment around them. So you might be a fully assimilated Christian and a, and a real believing Christian, but the fact is people constantly look at you differently and don't really let you fully assimilate, don't let you join this group or that group. That, that sometimes leads to a certain heightened sense of communal solidarity, which in some cases dips into religious, secret religious life. So that's, you know, people often use the term Murano, um, it's not an accurate historical term. It wasn't really used back then. Um, it means it's, it's one of the many words Spanish language has for pig and pig products. Um, Spanish culture really loves pig products. Um, and so they have a lot of words for it, but it's a type of pig. Um, but it, it's really more of a, a it's a, it has a very interesting history, um, but it's not really historical. Um, often enough, a converso who was accused of backsliding and going back to, to, to Judaism would be derogatorily called a Jew. Um, to be called a Jew when you're a Christian was grounds for 
challenging someone to a duel. You know, I mean, it was that that the pejorative. Um, also, dog was much more common. But um, for those, so so in any case, those people who are of conversion origin who go back to Judaism or hold on to some aspect of Judaism, I I in my book and and the way I look at it is I call those people crypto Jews. Um, and the thing to keep in mind here, and this is really important because it often gets lost, is that most of these people that you could term as a crypto Jew, they're not keeping Tariyag Mitzvot, you know, in secret. They're not keeping Muksa. They're not keeping, they are holding on to some things. Sometimes it's very identitarian and sometimes very, it's very faith-based. So it's, I believe that I'll be saved in the law of Moses. Okay, this expression like that, um, and maybe maybe it's a lot of you know a lot of the practices are things like fasting. So you can't. It's a it's a lack of something. Also, it 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 serves as very pen, you know as a penitential thing. Um, you know, praying in your heart, avoiding certain foods, avoiding them in, at home but not in public. You know, so it, it's 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 a range. Um, Professor Yerushalmi, Yerushalmi in his in his in his classic um, from Spanish court to Italian ghetto, uh, his intro there does a great job um, explaining some of this history and explaining what is really essential to understand, which is the Portuguese connection, um, which kind of will get us to some of the people in the book. But um, the the biggest group in 1492, Jews they leave, they go all over. Go all over where they can. They can't go to France. France already doesn't allow Jews. Can't go to England. Um, those who had the means and the money made it to Italy, which had certain city-states that would welcome them. Some went to Morocco, obviously. Uh, from Italy, many of them move further east, the Ottoman Empire. So, you know, the great Sephardic communities of the world, you know, were in places like Livorno, like Venice, like Istanbul, like Salonika, like Tzfat, um, you know, moving there and keeping their language. This is why they spoke Jewish, Judeo-Spanish, you know, until, you know, into the 20th century and, and whatnot. Um, but the biggest group, the biggest single block were Jews who went to Portugal. And they go to Portugal. Um, Portugal is, is this little country with very few resources. You know, it's good wine, good sheep, um, but it doesn't have, but it has the ocean. And the Portuguese are intrepid mariners. They go out into the Atlantic. They are doing a lot already in the 15th century, early 15th century. They're setting up um, trading bases along the coast of Africa. And this is a complicated business. There's a lot of risk involved, a lot of peace, moving pieces. And the Jews were seen as potential um, mid-level workers in that international commercial venture. So they would be the, you know, the bookkeepers and they'd be the, the financiers and they would be the insurance people. They would be all those, all those roles. And then very often also involved in the, in the actual buying and selling and, and, and distributing. Um, and they were seen as this important kind of uh, learned, uh, you know, lettered group um, that could fulfill the role they played in earlier medieval times as those kind of Petty and high-level financiers, um, in in a much bigger 
a booming economy in Portugal. And so they go there uh, in 1492. They, um, and they, 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 they're all over the country, actually, you know, obviously in the main ports like Lisbon and Porto, but they're, they're Jewish communities um, in a place like Braganza, which is on the border with Spain, it's in the middle of nowhere. I mean, to, in today's terms, but at the time was a very important Jewish, um, Jewish center. This is all good for five years. When, and then at that point is a long story. Francois Sawyer, um, a great scholar out of Australia has written really a great book on this. I highly recommend uh, his work on this question of what exactly happened in 1497. Uh, but the long story short, Jews are forcibly converted en masse. So you have an entire community converted. And now you have maybe 100,000, probably maybe less of converts who are told that the Inquisition will not investigate them for 40 years, well, 20 years, and then they bribe it up to 40 years. So Yerushalmi argues, and, and, and there's a lot to this. I think this is, I don't think it's so uh, controversial, that Crypto-Judaism in any form really is maintained and in, enriched and, and spread out of Portugal. And if you trace a, almost any of the interesting cases of crypto-Judaism uh, throughout the Spanish world and the Iberian world, um, there's going to be a Portuguese link. Um, and, and, and all the people I deal with in this book are, are, have a Portuguese connection, um, even the you know, people who are Spanish. Uh, so to speak. So, so that's that's kind of a background, um, you know, to get get us where we're, you know, get us into the book and and what what this Sephardic Atlantic is, right? Because it's it's this place where um, um, conversos and crypto Jews and 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 open Sephardim are all involved in some aspect of this new opening of the Atlantic to trade and to and to colonization and yeah. Right. We don't want to go. To, I mean, that's a very nice uh, brief overview. I mean, we don't want to go further, but I mean, in, in Portugal, there was no Inquisition for a while till was it 1537? I don't know if I'm maybe years wrong. And then eventually they go to so that when there's an Inquisition there, they go to Spain, which is the Inquisition that labs and they eventually start leaving and they go spread out like all over. And that's how we get to. So this creation of this Spanish Portuguese, the, the nation, I'm not going to say the word uh, right. It's a not Nassau. Nassau. Yeah. So as they call them in the transatlantic trade and they end up in the, in the Atlantic and the West Indies and. And uh, and all over. Okay, so then we get kind of to your book. And this is briefly all we said is in your book in the beginning. So your book deals with uh, specifically three autobiographies of these conversos or former conversos, crypto-Jews that you discuss and you analyze. So, I mean, first of all, we'll, we'll, go, we'll, leave, we'll leave aside the discussing them for a, for a minute. But so what, why did you focus on autobiographies and just talk a little bit about what an autobiography is and what it means exactly in these contexts. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so I, I, I was trained in, in literary studies, um, not, not specifically as a historian. I, I be, I've become an historian, uh, but my kind of, my orientation was from philosophy, was from literature. Um, and I was in search of stories. I was in search of, and particularly, of people's autobiographical stories. I was very much taken by this. And like I mentioned earlier, um, a lot of the literature that we consider kind of foundational 
to the colonial Latin America and canon, if you want to say, are these store these texts that are written from the first person point of view of someone describing? I left here and I went there and I encountered these people and then I then there was a hurricane and then I came here, you know, and along the way of telling these dry kind of accounts, you know, took 10 miles to get there, you know, whatever, they open up their soul, right? Because they're going, you know, all of us, you know, you go on a journey and things happen to you. You encounter new people, you encounter new, new, new phenomena, things happen to you. And I was interested in that. I wanted to know what happened to people. You know, I'm curious how they use their writing to make sense of the world that they were encountering and what was going on inside of them and the moral and ethical questions that they had and the religious doubts that were coming up. And that's one of the things I loved about those, you know, re- those early readings. And I, from other reading in history, it was clear to me that there were, there were conversos and then later Jews coming to the Americas. So what were they writing about? What was their experience? How was it different? Was it different at all? Was it, you know, what, what was that experience like coming and seeing, you know, experiencing a hurricane for the first time, right? Something you've never seen, experiencing a tropical jungle, um, encountering Native Americans and their cultures and their languages and their, and, 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 and their ways of being, um, encountering slavery, encountering all those things that are the American experience. What was it like for Jews who doing that? And I, I started digging around. I, I, I had a, I was lucky enough. I had a good summer job where they didn't pay me very much, but they also didn't care what I did. Um, this was at JTS at the rare book room. And I, I thank them profusely in my, both my dissertation and my, and, and in the book, because by not supervising me very much, um, I, I stumbled around and I found books and I, I didn't understand why these books were in a Jewish collection. What was Jewish about a travelogue of a Portuguese guy who goes to India? Um, what's, why is that here? Why, you know, I started noticing things and I couldn't, so I, I, I dug deeper into, into these books and I started realizing there's not a lot, but there's something here. There's something here. Um, and I wanted to find those stories. So, um, you know, in terms of autobiography, this time period is this, um, is a period in the Iberian world of a real explosion of, of first person narratives of people needing to account for themselves because it's a, it's a big empire. There's a lot of bureaucracy. You're given a mission to take hundred soldiers to this Island. You come back with 20 because they all died. You know, they were all killed uh, or your ship dr- sunk. You have to tell your story and in telling your story, you have to present yourself. So we have these kind of these, these are th- these kind of official reports called relaciones, which um, just means uh, it means a report. It means uh, you know you kind of telling over what what happened. We are doing it for a very specific purpose, but we see this this very bureaucratic genre of people needing to kind of justify and explain their actions to some higher up. We see it bleeding and into First of all, uh, fictional autobiographies, so like pseudo autobiographies, like no- novels that are written in 
in an autobiographical form, a novel like La Serie de Tormes, a, one of the first great picaresque novel, um, translated into English as well. It was a very popular book um, where you have this down on his luck guy who tells the story of his life. Um, it's a novel. It's made to be a novel. You know, it's a novel. You're made to laugh. You're made to kind of be engaged. But it, it follows the format of these official tellings, these official. Um, but that's happening in other places, too, like the Inquisition. Um, so uh, Richard Kagan, a great scholar of, of, of early modern Spain, um, he wrote, together with Abigail Dyer, a, a book that I use in my Inquisition course uh, called Brief, Brief Lives. Or no, Inquisitorial Inquiries. Sorry, here it is. Inquisitorial Inquiries. And it was from him that I, I, I first got the idea, uh, the fact that the Inquisition, when they bring you in, they first ask you to give what they call a discurso de la vida, a discourse of your life or the telling of your life. And most peoples are pretty boring. I was born here. These are my parents. They were shoemakers. I did that. I did this as my education. I, I can say the Ave Maria. I can do it right. But once in a while, people's stories are mind-blowing. People's stories. And who are these people? These aren't rich people. I mean, sometimes they are. But these aren't the people who would normally get their stories told. And that's the other thing. How do we get voices that normally aren't told? Either because of, because of power dynamics, because of basic economics, because of levels of education um, and access to, you know, to the luxury of writing down your life story, of preserving it. Um, we have this in the Jewish world, the world of Tzavaot, right? Tzava, right? An ethical will where someone, someone writes down what they hope their children will take, take from them spiritually. Um, and who, you know, who, uh, who has that? Well, someone whose family cared enough and had the luxury of preserving something like that. And, and there are families that have sabot that go back generations. Um, this is a very old, beautiful, beautiful, powerful um, custom. And um, so, but most people don't have that. So in the Inquisition, you'll get someone who's arrested. Obviously, they're under duress, right, when they tell their story. So the whole fact, you know, the the fact versus fiction piece is one of the, you know, it's a classic question with inquisitorial material. Um, but they're telling a story. And as a literary person, I'm interested in stories. So it's not to mean that I don't care about the history or the facts or whatever corroborating contextual information I can figure out, but I'm searching for people using language to to explain their reality to explain their past explain their 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 experiences um so i was searching for this and and like i was saying this this time period is a time period where this genre is is exploding in a lot of different ways in ways that you don't normally think about them as autobiographies as we do in modern times but that people are presenting themselves to an audience and explaining their life. Um, now, the, the, you you were asking about spiritual autobiography, which is what I call these because I think that's what they are to, to a great extent. Um, you know, spiritual autobiography obviously obviously is going to focus on on a person's religious development, 
on their the relationship, the, the, the journey of their soul in this world, um, their religious challenges, religious discoveries, their growth, their falls, their, um, you know, the most famous of these is, is St. Augustine's Confessions. Um, you know, it's a classic and had a huge, you know, impact on future writing. But at this time period, that's another thing that's happening in the Christian world, where um, the Catholic Church doubles down on the sacraments of the church. And one of the main sacraments is confession. And they really push confession and they they push priests to really develop the, the practice. If someone comes to you, you really help them in this process of unburdening themselves and of, of, of seeing their, their ways. And it's very psychological. So people are doing that all the time. They're just not writing it down. Obviously, it's oral. But then we do see people like prominent Christians like someone like someone like Saint Teresa of Avila, writing down her life story for the edification of others, um, and so that's happening in the Christian world. Um, and again, I'm saying, well, these people that I'm interested in, the conversos and the Sfaradim, are deeply aware of all the liter- of all the cultural currents around them. Where where are they? Where are they talking about this stuff? Where is this coming up? And so these are the these are the questions that kind of pushed me to, to, to search for what I found um, and, to, and to think about it in those terms. Yeah. <clears throat> so there's one more general question. I don't want to bore people with so many details before we get into the actual stories. Is it so, so these, all these autobiographies were, therefore they weren't necessarily hundred percent true. They, all these facts happened, so to speak, it was more like a, literary device or not really device, more like some of the, the the authors whoever they were were trying to portray themselves and their family and their life a certain way yeah i mean the, the whole um bencio netanyahu alava shalom um his idea was that he believed that you cannot trust anything that's written in an inquisitorial testimony because it was all done under the threat of torture and worse. So how can you believe anything anyone's going to say there? So he refused to use any of those materials. He felt that they were completely compromised and, and, and didn't look at them at all. So, you know, you can understand the logic there, but I think it's too logical because life is more complicated. And you, you know from your own life, you know, if you, you remember, you know, maybe some, some important event that happened to you a few years ago, I don't know, you were in a car accident, God forbid, or, or, or you remember the, you know, the birth of your child or something like that, you're going to remember it differently in different times. You're going to tell the story somewhat different. Um, our memory, you know, is, is, is very, you know, it's not, it's not a static thing. It's not a, it's, you know, the, the image I like is, you know, it's not like a security camera, right? It's just like, just taking the images. There's no, you know, the idea of that, an unbiased, it's, 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 it's not the way the world works. That said, you know, it's more of a question of kabdehu vechashdehu, you know, of, you know, you, you can get a lot out of this material to read it for historical accuracy. Um, you need to be careful. Um, and I, I come to all this material with a lot of suspicion, a lot of, um, I'm looking for, I'm looking for the things which seem to break with kind of a pat 
answer. You know, often often people will give these pat answers in, in terms of the inquisitorial material. Um, but, you know, all, but all these cases, you know, we're always shaping our narratives. And that's a much better way. In other words, you know, someone includes or did or or leaves out something, they're not necessarily lying. Um, and if they are lying, well, why are they lying? Um, so, in the, you know, so so that's that's like first of all my orientation, like that the idea of it is truth in a in a positivist way. Like I, I I'm not that's not what I'm looking for. That's not to say that these are all fantasies. These are on. First of all, we have a lot of. I mean, the people I work on, there's a lot of corroborating evidence for most of it. Um, so it's it's more of a question of I'm interested in how they tell their story. What are they focusing on? What images are they using? Um, what are the big ideas they're grappling with? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's but it's a great question. It is it is one of it is maybe the question, but that's true of 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 any time someone tells their story it's going to be, those issues are going to come up, you know, um, and they need to, they should be. I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't say, oh, it doesn't matter. Of course it matters, but you, you need it. And I, and I, you know, I think you need to kind of balance as you navigate those, those, you know, those waters. Yeah. Okay. So, so, I mean, you touch on some of, you know, explain some of this in the book and then you, you, you know, throughout the book, I'll explain how it works, right? You go through the, the different chapters, you know, discussing, taking excerpts and discussing the, these autobiographies in their life. So let's talk about, I guess, first overarching all three, and then we can discuss specifically, you discuss uh, three individuals. Hopefully I don't uh, butcher the Spanish pronunciation. Luis de Carvajal, the younger, Antonio de Montesinos, otherwise known as Arna Levy, and he may, people may be familiar with his, and Manuel Cardozo de Macedo. Probably butchered all the names, but anyways, give a brief bio of them, of the three of them. Fine. You did fine. Thank you. So, all right. So Carvajal is probably the most well-known. Um, his, his, the name he used to talk about himself in his religious writings was, was Joseph Lumbroso. Um, Lumbroso is a very beautiful last name. It means luminous, you know, enlightened. Um, it is also a, a not uncommon Sephardic last name. There are Lumbrosos throughout the Sephardic diaspora. Um, and the question of Sephardic last names, you know, of people who converted and then embrace a, a new name is, is one of the interesting questions historically. Are these names that they've maintained in their family legend? Are they chosen names? All right, it's, it's interesting. Any case, so Joseph Lombroso, he's the first one I'll talk about briefly. He's a brief bio. Um, moves with his family when he was a teenager from Spain to Mexico, to what was known then as New Spain, um, the territory which is today Mexico. Um, he moves in 1579. He moves with his family, his uncle and namesake, Luis de Carvajal, uh, the, the elder, uh, was named as governor of this large territory in the northeast of modern Mexico, where includes like Monterrey and, and places like that, um, up in the north, leading towards, you know, the border with Texas and the United States. Um, and he was given this title to be governor, and he needed to, to colonize it. He brings a lot of his family members um, with him, and Luis kind of serves with him. As uh, as his right hand man throughout throughout those years, 
um, in Mexico. And um, while living as a converso, as a, as a devout Catholic, um, in the inside, secretly, Luis and many of his family um, harbored very, very passionate Jewish um, connections, um, you know, maintaining practices and beliefs. And uh, Luis go, takes it much further and really, I argue, and, and you know, really kind of recreates a Judaism for himself and his family. Um, and, and we'll get into that. But anyways, he his family's arrested first in 1589. Um, then they are penanced because they, they plead for mercy. They are arrested by the Inquisition. Yes, the Inquisition moves to the Americas. A lot of people didn't know, don't know that. Um, with the development of colonization and the empire, um, Spain brings, sets up an Inquisition in Mexico City, in Lima, and in Cartagena de Indias, uh, which is you know in modern day Colombia to port. And this was, you know, set up to patrol heresy, just like it was in Spain. And um, so he was arrested by that, by the by, by the Inquisition, penanced um, afterwards, where he works in a monastery teaching Latin to indigenous um, students. Um, while in the monastery, he gets access to books, and this kind of transforms his religious life. He's eventually arrested again with his mother and, and sisters in uh, 1595 and is burnt at the stake of an auto de fe in 1596, along with his mother and, and, his, and his older sisters. Um, but along with his arrest, they found this remarkable book, this little book that he wrote um, that included an autobiography. It included um, all sorts of religious writings, original religious poems, um, a meditation on the commandments, all sorts of things, a calendar. It's a fascinating work. I, I just actually wrote um, a tablet piece on, on this, this manuscript. Um, and I'm working with, with two uh, dear friends and colleagues, um, Jesus de Prado and Ignacio Chuecas, uh, two scholar, two friends of mine uh, that were working on a critical edition and translation of this manuscript that um, the story with the manuscript is that it was used as evidence against Carvajal during the trial. It was preserved as part of his trial record in the archive and was stolen from the archive in 1932. Um, so how am I doing a translation? So, uh, so as my book was coming out a few years back, um, word got out that uh, this book was 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 rediscovered. Um, someone approached Leonard Milberg, a collector of of Judaica and early Americana, um, to buy this book. He smelled something funny. He looked into it, and when the experts assured him that this was the book, he he contacted the FBI and uh, the Mexican authorities and. And eventually, it made its way back to to Mexico City. It's now in the vault of the Museum of Anthropology there. Um, so, um, but before sending it back, Milberg had it digitized at Princeton. So you can go to the Princeton University website and put in Carvajal and put in manuscript, and you will find it digitized beautifully. So I I, I have tremendous tremendous hakarata tov to uh, Mr. Milberg. And, and so do anyone who cares about this stuff. Um, 
you know, for having it digitized and easily accessible to anyone um, throughout the world. Yeah. Because before this, you were there was a transcript done before it was stolen, right? Yes. Thank you. So luckily, before the mysterious visitor who came to the archive in 1932 and stole it, um, stole it, um, Alfonso Toro, who wrote the first book on Carvajal, um, he's a Mexican historian. He wrote this first large book on the Carvajal family. He transcribed the autobiography, which was the main part, the, uh, a major part of, the, of that manuscript. He transcribed it for his own use. And when it was stolen and he published his book, he, he published his transcription as an appendix of his, of his book. And actually that book, um, my, my parents received a copy of that book as a gift from clients of theirs. Um, and it, it, I one one summer, you know, off on break from grad school, I, I was looking at the book and that's where I first discovered Carvajal. So it's thanks to Toro's uh, transcription that I first started, you know, reading this really incredibly interesting um, writer. And so the autobiography uh, was available to us and the immense resources of the inquisitorial trial, right? This is a trial of his entire family, testimonies, people talking about their religious lives, people confessing about this person and that person, who was their teacher and what did they do and how did they celebrate Yom Kippur and what did they do on the fast of Esther and all these things. So we had a lot of information. And that's why someone like Martin Cohen, um, who wrote the, the, the next important book on Carvajal, and really it's a, his book called The Martyr, it's available in paperback today, uh, thanks to reprinting. Um, the Martyr is an excellent, excellent uh, um, resource if you want to go deep into Carvajal's biography. Um, if you want to have fun with Carvajal's biography, I encourage you to look at the graphic novel by Ilan Stavans, very talented, prolific writer uh, who did a graphic novel called El Illuminado. It's in English with a lot of Spanish words. Anyways, but getting back here, um, so that's, that's Carvajal. He, so, you know, he dies in 1596, but his writings are this, you know, um, place where all these different currents come together in a very original way. Uh, the second person I'll talk about is, is, um, is Antonio de Montesinos, a Portuguese new Christian who travels to the Americas. Um, has an experience while there that he writes about. Um, sorry, he doesn't write about, but he, he has this very powerful experience in the Americas where he um, describes encountering the lost tribe of Reuben, who is living in the Andes and has a message for world Jewry. He, after years of living as a converso, he decides to leave the Americas and goes to Amsterdam to share this news with the Jews of Amsterdam. So the Jews of Amsterdam, this is the 1640s. The Jews of Amsterdam are all port, former Portuguese Christians, right? They're conversos. They, they lived at least two or three generations as Catholics before coming to Amsterdam. And so this is his community. These are his people. Um, these people understand him. He shares it with them. And then the story's kind of buried. Um, uh, not much is done with it. Until Christians start asking Menashe ben Israel, the great Amsterdam rabbi, about the story. 
And Menashe sees that they're misunderstanding his message. And he feels he needs to write his own book to set the story straight. And that book is the Mikveh Israel, uh, first written as, as Esperanza de Israel in Spanish and translated to many languages, where he quotes a, you know, the transcription of, of Montezino's uh, deposition describing his experience in the Americas with the Reubenites. Um, he quotes the entire thing and then writes about 125 pages or so analysis, um, bringing in all sorts of interesting proof texts. And it's just kind of a meditation. The Mikveh Israel is kind of a meditation on the Americas, on messianism, on, on the state of the Jews, on all sorts of things. It's a fascinating, complicated work and a great work that I, I really think needs a new translation because the only one we have in English is the translation done in, 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 in the 17th century. Um, um, and the last guy that I'll talk about, my last, my last figure is, is a old Christian, meaning there was no Jewish past. He did not, he, his parents, his grandparents, great-grandparents, all the way back are Christians. They never converted from Judaism. And he's, his name is Manuel Cardoso de Macedo, who was born in the, the Azores, these islands in the North, North Atlantic. His father has business in England, and to kind of initiate him into the business, he sends him to England. The problem is um, the Cardozos are very, very religious Catholics, and England is in the middle of this Protestant, you know, uh, Protestant uh, free-for-all, uh, where you have a lot of different sects, a lot of different uh, Protestant activity. And as, as Cardoso says, you know, I, I, I started learning the Bible as I learned English. And so his whole experience of England was one that turned him on to being a Protestant. And as a good teenager, he found a great way to rebel against his parents. And um, he became this devout Calvinist, keeping it secret from his parents. Eventually, the word gets out. He gets thrown in prison. And while in prison he meets an accused Judaizer, someone who was accused of, of practicing Judaism. Uh, and when he hears what this guy is accused of, the crimes that he's accused of, he's shocked that there's someone in the world that still keeps all the laws of the Bible. And this, this causes a tremendous religious challenge to him. And after a lot of soul searching, he decides that Judaism is the truth, and he needs to find out more about it. And through all sorts of, you know, different circumlocutions, he gets out of Portugal, makes his way with a group of, of, of conversos, uh, first to Hamburg, and then to Danzig, and then eventually to Amsterdam, uh, where he, he fully converts, uh, he's, circum he's circumcised, and now he's known as Abraham Pellegrino, or Abraham Ger. Pellegrino means wanderer or pilgrim. Um, and he's Abraham Pellegrino, and he is a old Christian convert to Judaism um, who lives out his days in Amsterdam. And at some point writes his life story down. It, it was preserved in the Eitzchayim Library in Amsterdam. Uh, in manuscript, one manuscript, Benjamin Tinsma uh, wrote um, a, a wonderful critical edition of it and transcription. Um, and um, and a translation into Dutch. And I and Alexander van der Haven uh, 
just uh, just a few months ago put out a English translation and a new kind of biographical treatment of the of the Vida, the the life story of of Avraham Ger. And I, I translated it to English, and I I hope it's it it lives up to the original because it's an amazing story of religious discovery and religious um, you know development. Um, and I and and tells us a lot about the time period, but also on its on its own is a worthy um, text to to study and to appreciate and to to see in its you know in its wider context. So those are the those are the three the three individuals and their texts, and it's hard to disassociate them from their their you know their the text that they wrote. For me, you know they're they're all kind of they're all interwoven into each other. So first of all, I'll, I'll try, and I'm not going to get to be able to link to everything that you, uh, all the books that you've referenced throughout this podcast, but I'll definitely try to link to Cohen's book about Carvajal. Well, first and foremost, link to your book. Uh, I will link to that, and I will link to, to in the show's notes to Carva, to Cohen's book, the Stephen's book that you mentioned. Um, also, think- also, just I want to say, uh, Miriam Bodian's chapter on Carvajal in um, in her Dying the Law of Moses is is a masterpiece. It's just so good. Um, and it's, it's just really, you learn a lot. I mean, she's a master of this stuff. Um, and on Amsterdam, obviously, you, you know, Josef Kaplan, who, uh, even though I was never formally a student, you know, has been a huge, huge uh, mentor to me and, and, and help, um, you know, so, you know, to, to de- get deep into that, that amazing um, context. Um, but there's so much more. Anyways, yes. Yeah, no, I'm just saying, you know, Mikvah Israel, there is there's a Hebrew edition on Hebrew books. Like I can link to people can Menashe Ben Israel. Um, and then there's also, um, you mentioned your new translation of Aseto. So I'll try, I'll try to include some things in the, in the show's notes. Um, now, okay, so you mentioned all these three, and these are, you know, you go throughout the book, like I mentioned earlier, you take various excerpts and you work through it. So give, it, give, it, give the listeners an idea, give them, you know, an over, you know, an example, some examples of how you use these various autobiographical texts, you know, how you use them in the book and what you, you know, yeah. what you pull out of them to show us. So, you know, the, the subtitle of the book, which uh, is, is Blood and Faith. And one of the realizations I had, uh, and this, this I, I, I think, I, I taught at Brandeis for, a few, for two years, and I, I, I had a colleague there at the time, Sylvia Rome, who's a social historian, she offered to read my dissertation and we met for lunch and she brought it back with copious notes and a tremendous, generous soul. And she said to me, you know, this is all about family. And I'm like, looking, I was like, what do you mean? I, I didn't see that at all. I came back and I realized I know exactly what she's talking about. And these figures, um, the, the, the kind of the, the animating one of the main animating themes throughout these texts and the larger Jewish and converso world of the time is the way that what I call blood families and faith families interact with each other and inspire each other and, 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 and shape each other. Um, and that was the, the my way in into the text and to seeing them in, in connection to each other, but also as a lens outwards to the wider to the wider world. Um, I, I mentioned you know the importance of international trade. So there's been a lot written on this, and the question these these trading companies often were function like families, 
and people and in fact people did marry in and marry out and they kind of had these connections um and this is the sort of thing um that keeps makes the nassau a nassau that makes the nation this portuguese nation um connected connecting them across religious lines so you know you will be doing business with someone in your extended family who may be catholic but you are you're jewish um that's just was part of the reality and 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 so these these texts were a great way to look at that but also like so for instance with 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 cardozo with avram pellegrino he doesn't have family so who's his family so it leads to these really so he's he's obsessed with the fact that his ancestors were jew haters so how, who am i how can i be here how can i be part of kalashem how can I be here? How can I have a place here? And, and that's a, his, you know, his anxiety that his blood is tainted, so to speak. How how can I be a part of this world? And so a lot of his a lot of his um, his 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 autobiography is proving to his reader or to himself that he deserves a place in God's house. Right. That's his kind of, um, and he shows it through his sincerity, through his. Uh, through his sacrifice, he sacrifices himself for to protect other Jews um, and things like that. Um, in Antonio Montesinos, we get to deal with the family of man, humankind. What does it mean? What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be? What does it mean to be a Jew? But what is it? What does it mean to be part of the Jewish people? But what does it mean to be human? Because that was one of the great questions that the encounter with the new world elicited for Europeans. Are the Native Americans fully human? Do they have all the rights that we have? Um, and this is, you know, that was one of the great early human rights debates or, you know, question of, of humanity. And Montesinos tells his story that he, he begins the story. He says, I was arrested by the Inquisition and I'm in prison and I'm saying my morning prayers. And he says this weird version of the Shalosanis. So instead of Shalosani Go, Shalosani Isha, Shal, right? Shalosani Eved, he includes those. But then he says, who didn't make me a black, who didn't make me an Indian, who didn't make me a barbarian. He like adds and adds and adds all these other groups. This is an interesting, uh, you know, it's interesting Nusach. It's the, and, um, and he said that every time he got to Indian, Thank God he's not making me an Indian. I had to stop because I kept on having flashbacks to meeting this group of Indians in the mountains that I had this experience with. And he keeps on going back to it. And what's the experience? He had this experience on the mountain where these Indian porters, um, they had an exchange and they said some weird cryptic things. So in prison, saying this bracha, he has this epiphany. That those people back in the mountains, those people that he is so happy he's not, those people who are you know beneath him, who are powerless and 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 abject, guess what? He says, those Indians are Jews. And this leads him on this whole journey to go back and find those Indians. And and um, and he has this 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 encounter where you know, those questions, again, of the humanity, of what does it mean to be part of the human family, was it part of a spiritual family, um, all come out. And of course, um, 
you know, even the way Menasha talks about him, Menasha says about Ar- Arna Levy or, or Antonio de Montesinos, he says, we can trust him because we know him. We know his family. We know where he comes from. Many of, he literally says, we, we know where, where he comes from. Many of us came from there. We know him. We can be trustworthy. Um, so again, the sense of, the, of, the, of that idea that the Spanish Portuguese Jews had of themselves as a Nassau, which is really this kind of ethnic group. Um, and in Carvajal, we actually get siblings. In Carvajal, we actually get, he has these fat, you know, these, these very, very interesting sisters that he's very close to, who are very powerful in their own right. His mother is very important. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I was saying Carvajal actually has siblings. He talks, first of all, we have all their trial records. So the, we, we get them, we hear the confessions of his sisters, of his mother, of his uncle, um, of his, his brothers run away, except for one. The, the, he has a brother who's a monk who, who's there. Um, but we get to see the textures of their real family. But then we also see the ways that other people become brothers and sisters in a spiritual sense. And so that, that was the other thing that, that, was drawn, that I was drawn to see these connections and that, that this big socioeconomic reality of these transatlantic families um, has this parallel in the spiritual side. And that's kind of, you know, that shows up in these autobiographies. Um, yeah. Okay, very interesting. Obviously, there's a lot more than what we discussed about sure. the book, where you go many more examples and Carvajal, especially you spend a lot, a lot of time on him. So like I said, I will link to the to the book in the show's notes. People can check it out. So I mean, th- this now, this book, like you said, was uh, was your dissertation, right? It was based on that. And it, 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 it came- Yeah, it, it, I mean, it looks very, very different than the dissertation. I... I, I thought the dissertation was perfect when I finished it. I thought it couldn't be improved. And after a, a year or two later, I looked at it. And I'm like, this is really, what is this? This is a dissertation, not a book. And that's when I, I, you know, saw, you know, I kept all the same characters, all the same texts, but it went in a very, very different direction, thankfully. And, um, and that's what became the book. So, yeah. 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 Um, Right. Now, this book was also published a few years ago, a number of years ago. So what have yeah. you, I'm assuming you've worked on something since. You mentioned you're working on some articles, translations. Are you working on another book, other projects? What are you working on now? Yeah, so I have I have some, right, so the translation of, of Cardozo was something I, I did recently. Um, I've, one of my projects that I've been wanting to do, I wrote an article about this years ago, and something that I thought I was going to go to next, which is, um, the Psalms and the role of Tehillim in vernacular in the in the in the Atlantic world. Um, there's a there's this fascinating translation, a poetic translation into Spanish of Tehillim, written by by um, Daniel Lopez Laguna, who was a Portuguese converso who was arrested and while he was in prison starts composing this translation in Spanish, uh, in poetic Spanish of the Psalms. And he makes a vow that if he gets out of prison, he's going to finish it. And he goes, gets out of prison and moves to Jamaica where in 1721, he finishes it. It's published in England. It's a fascinating, beautiful work. And I've always wanted to. And and so one of my projects that I, I, I hope to get to at some point is 
is a study of the way of the role of the Psalms in the Sephardic context, in the Sephardic Atlantic context, um, the role of translation in that the and and what's you know what's it doing socially, but also also you know why translate it? Why translate it so many times? And how's that fitting in with the wider Protestant and Catholic context that these Jews are a part of both? So that's that's kind of a long way off. I said I wrote a few things about that. Um, it got sidelined because, as I said, as my book was coming out, this manuscript comes out, and so right now my main project is to uh, working with, like I said, with my friends, um, uh, Professor Chuecas and, and, and De Prado, we are working on this, on this annotated critical edition translation study of the Carvajal text. And that's the, that's the, um, the big project. And because there's so much poetry in Carvajal, uh, it's, it's, it's tough. You know, the translation's not so easy and I'm having a good time figuring that out and it's a lot of fun and actually the psalms tilim are a big part of his own world and so i i see that this is going to help me in that other project too um you know and and so that is that's that's kind of what i'm you know the, but the big project is this um this translation project and um the goal would be to have a, a text which is accessible to a bilingual audience because we're going to have the original in Spanish in a clear context with notes because the Spanish is a different Spanish than today's and a translation which is accessible and readable but also having all the academic structure around it to allow people to go deep into the history and understand the time period and the religious sense. One of the things that we we see is that Carvajal is is not just kind of a curiosity about, oh, look, there's a Jew in Mexico. This is what he thought. But actually, he's a new world thinker. He's a new world religious visionary, religious thinker, philosopher, exegete, he, in his own right, and, and kind of has to be placed in that context. Um, so that's that's kind of our goal, is to make that accessible, but also show kind of depth there. So we'll see. Okay. A lot of work ahead. Sounds yeah. good. And I'll, like I said, I'll link to uh, Martin Cohn's book on The Martyr right. on, on Carvajal. People can check it out. And in your book as well, there's a lot of discussion on him and you use a lot of the, a lot of the, you know, the autobiography throughout your book to just talk about it. So, yeah. um, okay. Thank you very much for pleasure. coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and uh, we hope to cross paths again. Thank you very much. Thank All you. Right.